think we should give a round of, am I on? <laughs> I think we should give a round of applause to Rand Clark who did all those videos and his team. He's done a great job. It's just amazing. Um, before I begin preaching this morning, I do want to give you a prayer request. Um, we have a mission church Ovid, in Ovid, Colorado, Harvest Baptist Church. Uh, Mark Baker is the pastor. His wife is named Linda Baker. Uh, she's been battling cancer for many years. Um, we found out just a few weeks ago she has less than six months to live. I got an email from Mark this morning saying that she's really seriously um, sick, is in the hospital. And uh, this is a brother pastor whose first wife died of cancer, and now he's facing his second wife dying of cancer. So I want to just lift him up in prayer before we begin and just ask the Lord to bless him and bless our time together as we, uh, as we go diving into the word. Father, we come before you as desperate children that need grace. We need you. We desire you. And, and Lord, thank you for the, the music that we've been singing about lifting up the name of Jesus higher and higher. And that's what we desire to, to see this morning is Christ lifted up. Lord, we pray for our brother Mark and his wife Linda. Lord, it's, it's my prayer that you would heal her body, that you would just miraculously take the cancer away. Lord, we know that if it's not your will to do that, would you enable them to suffer well, relying upon the grace of Christ that's sufficient? Would you be the lifter of Mark's head today? Um, as he is a bivocational pastor in a very small town, Lord, just give him encouragement. And now, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come. Nothing of significance will happen. I'm just a man up here. I don't want people to hear my voice. We want to hear your voice through the word. And so would you speak to us that we might be changed, might be transformed. For the glory of Jesus and the honor of his name, we pray these things. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. We'll get there in a moment. I've got, I've got two things to say to you this morning. One is a warning. The other is an encouragement. How many of you remember what happened on that famous day, July 20th, 1969? Now, I don't remember anything about that because I wasn't born yet. But some of you remember what happened on that fateful day. It was the day that the Apollo 11 landed on the moon. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, the Sea of Tranquility, the first human being to ever set foot on the moon. It was a major day in the life of the United States. Just nine years earlier, President John F. Kennedy had the dream that we would land a person on the moon. It was an amazing mission. And we can think of a lot of amazing missions in the history of our world. There's the mission of the lunar landing on the moon. There's the mission of Lewis and Clark, the expeditions that went to the Pacific coast. We can think of the D-Day, that massive allied attack that basically signaled the end of World War II when, when all the allied troops stormed the beach of Normandy. That, that was a major mission. You may think of Christopher Columbus, Sailed the ocean blue in 1492. It was a mission to open up a whole new world. Many of us resonate with the mission. We all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. You may have a mission for your church this year. You may have a mission for your life. You may have a mission for your sports team. 
We won't say anything about the Broncos this year, but we, we may have a mission that our sports team will accomplish a great feat. Mission. John 20, 21 is our theme verse for this week. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. It's the theme verse. Our theme has been engage. Engage Colorado, engage North America, engage the ends of the earth. And so that brings us to a question, how do we engage? Now you've seen a lot of exciting testimonies. You've seen a lot of encouraging videos, a lot of encouraging reports. I pray that you've had a great time to fellowship together as Colorado Baptists and and you've been encouraged about what God is doing. And to be honest with you, I feel very uncomfortable standing before you to preach, especially after the two preachers that we've heard this week. Because I really can't stand before you and tell you to look at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado as this stellar example of of baptizing thousands of people. We haven't done that. I've never planted a church. And so there's nothing really that I can come to the table and tell you to do these great, amazing things to engage. I'm an ordinary, average pastor of an ordinary, average church, and I'm okay with that. That's how God has made me. I'm comfortable with that. But I do believe God can do great things no matter what size of church you have. And so when we come to an end of a convention like this, I believe there's a lot of range of emotions that we can have especially as pastors and leaders. We, we can leave this place with all these emotions in our hearts. We're stirred. And, and if we're not careful, we can walk away adopting some unhelpful attitudes, maybe even sinful attitudes. So what I want to do is I want to just give a warning to all of us. Four probably unhelpful or maybe even sinful attitudes that we could adopt as we, as we leave this place. The first attitude that we could probably adopt is what I call triumphalism. Now, Sean, what in the world is triumphalism? Triumphalism is this idea that we as Southern Baptists are God's great gift to God. And that somehow he must be lucky that we're on his team. After all, because we're Southern Baptists, God owes us success. May I remind you that God owes us nothing. It's by his very grace that we're even here this morning. Now, I'm thankful for the cooperative program. You know that. I'm thankful for our International Mission Board. I'm thankful for our North American Mission Board. I'm thankful for our state convention, for our agencies, for our seminaries. But I don't want us to ever have the idea that somehow God needs us because we have the moniker Southern Baptist. God does not need us. Supposedly, there are 16 million Southern Baptists. We can't find half of them, the FBI says. Don't know where they are. We prided ourselves on buildings, budgets, and baptisms. And that's not a bad thing. Those are good things. But I want us to celebrate something different this morning. For once in a while, can we celebrate weakness? That we are weak without Christ? Listen to the words of Paul. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. Jesus said to Paul, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Would we as Colorado Baptists boast in our weakness? We are a weak people, but he is strong. His grace is sufficient. Triumphalism. Second attitude we could adopt is what I call moralism. Moralism. 
Let me speak to the pastors here for just a moment. Many of us can think that just because we're pastors, that's our identity, and God must somehow bless me, or God must somehow do good things to me, because after all, I'm serving as a pastor. And what we get is that we get our identity and our position as pastors as opposed to our identity in Christ. We need to get our identity in Christ. Yes, we're called to be pastors. Yes, we're called to lead our churches. But we need to remember something. Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of our churches. I say that often to our church. I'm not the senior pastor Jesus is. We look to him. I'm just a sheep following him. I just happen to be hopefully in front of the rest of the congregation following our our Savior. But we are identified by our position with Christ. Can I give you guys a newsflash? And hopefully you understand this about the gospel. Pastors, church leaders, even Christians, on your best day when you're doing everything perfect and everything's going well, and on your worst day when you're tanking and things are going really bad, God does not love you more. He does not love you less based upon your performance. His love is perfect for you based upon Christ. Because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you through justification by faith alone, you stand accepted in the beloved. And when God the Father looks down on you, he sees you as accepted. So we don't have to perform for God in order for him to love us. We must leave here being moralists, thinking that somehow God must bless us because we're, we're doing things for Jesus. Triumphalism. Moralism. Another danger, another pitfall that we could possibly adopt as we leave this place is pragmatism. Pragmatism says, well, you know, I'm talking to all these pastors and and I'm reading all these books and I'm looking at all these paradigms and methods and and I'm looking at all these techniques and let me just adopt the best thing that's going to work. And and what I just want to accumulate my my, my shelf of books with all these different paradigms that are going to help me do my job better as a pastor. And what we've done is we've depended more upon methods, programs, paradigms, techniques than we've done on the power of God and the Holy Spirit. May we be a people that rely upon the power of the Spirit. Let me give you two powerful quotes from two old dead guys. It's always good to read from old dead guys. They get a lot of wisdom. A.C. Dixon says this, When we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. Listen to E.M. Bounds. We are constantly on the stretch, if not on a strain, to devise new methods, new plans, new organizations to advance the church and secure enlargement and efficiency of the gospel. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men, and I would add women, whom the Holy Spirit can use. Men and women of prayer. Men and women mighty in prayer. May we be a people that depend upon the Holy Spirit for power. Triumphalism, moralism, pragmatism. There's another unhelpful attitude that we could adopt as we leave this place. I call it defeatism. And maybe you're there this morning. You come to a, a conference like this and you hear about churches that are exploding, churches that are, that are doing all these ministries, and you hear, you hear your pastor friends talk about how God is blessing their church, and in your heart of hearts, you know, that's not me. I'm struggling. I feel defeated. I feel guilty when I come to things like this because my church is not doing well. Brother, pastor, I don't want you to leave this place feeling guilty 
I want you to leave this place being encouraged because of the God that we serve. Now, Charles Spurgeon said this, if you've never read the book Pilgrim's Progress, you're not allowed into heaven. How many of you read Pilgrim's Progress? It's my favorite book next to the Bible. So if you haven't read it, chances are you may not get to heaven. That's just theology from Spurgeon. There's a scene in the Pilgrim's Progress where Christian and hopeful are getting off the path. They go on Bypath Meadow. And they get in the clutches of what's called giant despair. And they end up in Doubting Castle. And there's the scene where they're in Doubting Castle and, and giant despair comes and he beats them mercilessly and he, and he tries to inflict damage upon them. And he, and he basically says, you guys need to commit suicide because things have gotten so bad. So he lays before them a hangsman, hangman's noose, a knife, and poison and says, just kill yourself, give up on life. And Christian, almost at the point of, of utter despair, almost takes his life. And Hopeful comes and says, Christian, don't do that. You've seen how, we've, how God has helped you win the battle. You, you've, you've fought Apollyon. You've gone through the valley of the shadow of death. We, we, we've escaped Vanity Fair. Don't, don't give in. And so it's Saturday night. And then this clock strikes midnight, Sunday morning, the Lord's Day. And Christian remembers that earlier evangelists had given him a key a key called promise that can open any prison. And so they open the door through the promise of God's grace and escape doubting castle in the clutches of giant despair. At this point, the last thing I want to do as you leave is to guilt you into doing something better for Jesus. I don't want us to leave here strutting our chest in this triumphalism, this pragmatism, this moralism, uh, this, this defeatism, uh, that, that we just leave this place either focusing so much upon ourselves or focusing so much on defeat that we don't have a clear view of the gospel. I believe we need something deeper and we need something greater to sustain us for mission. So here's an interesting thing. I'm not going to ask you to go out and do anything. Now, here's the theme. Engage is a verb, right? Go out and engage. I'm not going to ask you to do that. What I'm going to ask us to do is, is to get a, gl- a glimpse of the glory of Christ. Because when we lift up Christ as glorious, that motivates us for mission. And so what I want us to do is I want us to take a sneak peek into the very throne room of heaven this morning and see Christ in all of his glory and all of his splendor, and all of his majesty. And as we see Christ glorified, may that be the motivation for us to be sent out on mission. In those hard days, that's really what's going to motivate us, the gospel of Christ. So, as the song says, and I won't sing it, turn your eyes upon Jesus. You know it. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us all to turn our eyes upon Jesus. And the best way we can do that for this morning is in Revelation chapter 5. Now the year was 1972. It was the night of the Academy Awards. And this one particular actor had never received an Oscar, although he was probably one of the most famous actors of his day. And during the time of Joseph McCarthy in the 50s, this actor lived a self-imposed exile outside of the United States for 20 years. And in 1972, it came time for him to get a Lifetime Achievement Award for his acting. So they did a retrospective on his career, and the lights came down on the stage, and the actor stood there. The actor, Charlie Chaplin. 
And what began to erupt after that was the longest standing ovation in Oscar history, three minutes. Now that may not seem like a long time, but for these Hollywoodites to stand up and praise a man for three whole minutes with the standing ovation. A little bit over the top, don't you think, to praise a man. February 22nd, 1980, the miracle on ice. You remember the hockey game. The United States was against Russia, heavily favored to win the Olympic gold. Lake Placid, 1980. And if you remember the scene, the, the United States beat the Russian hockey team and went on to beat Finland 4-2 to and win the Olympics, but Al Michaels was calling the game. And if you have seen um, highlights of this, what were his famous words? Do you believe in miracles? Yes. And then the, the whole place just erupted in this exuberant expression of praise. Sports Illustrated said that was the greatest sports moment in the 20th century, this eruption of praise. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been at an event, maybe it's a sporting event, maybe it's a concert, where there was just this eruption of praise? Almost to the point of, dare I say, worship. Kind of eerie to think about how excited we get for sports, for movie stars, for famous people, almost to the point of worship. Now, we live in a world that is fascinated by Jesus, fascinated by Jesus. The world doesn't understand who Jesus is, but they're fascinated by him. And so here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us just to ask one simple question, and I pray that this text that we look at in Revelation will answer it. It's a very simple and basic question. I think it's a fundamental question. Here's the question. Why is Jesus Christ alone worthy of all of our praise? Why is he greater than Buddha Why is he greater than Allah? Why is he greater than 10 million Hindu gods? Why is he better than any new age system of of spirituality? Why is he better than Oprah? Any other ism that you can think of? Why is Jesus worthy of praise? And then if he is worthy of praise, how does that motivate us to engage? How does that motivate us for mission? Instead of leaving here in triumphalism, moralism, pragmatism, or defeatism, I want us to leave here today being saturated with the glory of Christ. I like to talk about Jesus. I like to see Jesus. I think our people need to see Christ, not us, Christ. It's interesting, Charles Spurgeon's life motto was not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. Would that be our life motto as well as Colorado Baptist? Not I, but Christ. So let's finally get to the text with that very long introduction. Revelation chapter 5. We're going to look at this in in some chunks, but we'll look at verses 1 through 6 together. Revelation 5, starting in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. Because no one was able, or no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. 
I want us to see three things about Jesus from this text. As we turn our eyes upon Jesus, as we leave this place together, three things that emerge from this text. Here's the first one. Jesus is the cornerstone of the entire universe. He is the cornerstone. Now, John here is given a vision of heaven. And if you go back and you look at chapter 4, you realize that he's in the throne room of God himself. And then God is on the throne. In his right hand, he's holding a scroll. Now, what's the significance of the scroll being in the right hand of God? It represents power, authority. God is a sovereign God. He has all authority. He has all power. He's got a scroll. And the scroll is written on the front and on the back. It's completed. There's no room to write anything else on the scroll, meaning that this is the the, the will of God to accomplish his will upon the earth. It's, It's the scroll of destiny, if you will, the scroll of God's sovereignty. And it's sealed with seven seals. Now, in those ancient days, you've seen pictures of this. They would take papyrus, and they would roll it up, and they would get a dab of hot wax, and they would would dab it upon the, 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 to seal it closed. They would put the signet ring on there, signifying this is the authoritative seal of the king. It cannot be broken. We've got the presidential seal today in our culture. But there were seven. And if you know anything about the book of Revelation, seven is a number of perfection, completeness. So in other words, this is God's impenetrable seal that he has alone power to execute his plan for the universe. It's impenetrable. Now, I grew up in Colorado Springs, and many of you have maybe visited NORAD, North American Space Command, defensing the, uh, basically what NORAD is, is, and I think this is still true, they basically monitor aircraft spacecraft to make sure that the United States does not get hit by a missile. And as a ninth grader, I took a tour of NORAD, and one thing I remember very distinctly about that were the doors. You had an eight-foot-thick metal door that sealed you into what they call the mountain. And at that time, it was probably the most highly secured area in the United States. It was impenetrable. And that has how God has protected his scroll. This is the scroll of sovereignty that God is going to accomplish in redeeming his people and executing judgment upon his enemies. And then there's this cry, this cry from heaven. There's this penetrating question. Who's worthy to open this scroll? Because if you go back to chapter 4, you realize that God is on his throne in brilliant light. There's peals of thunder. There's peals of lightning. There's the four living creatures next to the throne. There's a glassy sea surrounding him. Who in the world is going to go cross that amazing boundary and just waltz into God's presence and take the scroll out of his hand? Who's worthy to do this? No one. No created being is able to to do this. There's an excruciating silence. No one's able to do this. And this results in John weeping. And the text really here, if you look at the original language, it's a violent weeping. It's a continual weeping. Who's going to open this scroll? Now, now you may ask the question, why all the drama? Why can't God just open the scroll himself? Well, the Bible's a dramatic book. If you don't see the drama in the Bible, you're missing something. There's tension. God could just open the scroll. It doesn't mean he's aloof or he's some grandfather up in the sky that doesn't care. He's relegated the opening of the scroll to a mediator, his son. 
Jesus earned the right to come open the scroll by his death, burial, and his resurrection. So he's given it to Jesus. And one of the elders looks at John and says, stop crying. Why? Because there's one who's conquered. We all know what that Greek word is, Nike. There's one who has Nike. It's an emphatic expression. The original language means one who is completely conquered. Jesus is the cornerstone of all the creation, of all history, of the entire universe. He's the cornerstone, reason number one. Reason number two, not only is he the cornerstone, he's the conquering lion. Notice the description that's given of Jesus. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now you remember if you go back to Genesis 49, there's the prophecy that the scepter would never leave the tribe of Judah, that there would be a king emerge from the tribe of Judah. And we know eventually that David was the king that emerged from the tribe of Judah. And we know Jesus is the son of David. So this speaks to Jesus's kingship. But think about the imagery of a lion for a moment. A powerful, a powerful, uh, fierce animal that's, that's ready to tear apart its prey. Now we often visit the Denver Zoo. We like the Denver Zoo. It's fun. If you go to the beginning of the Denver Zoo there, you've got the lion exhibit, right? And they're out in their natural habitat. And, and for the most part, those lions are pretty lazy. I mean, have you ever been there when you've seen a lion do something that you want to see a lion do? Mainly just lay there. You've got the plexiglass so you can get up close, but you know, you're not really in any danger there at the zoo. But I'm told that a lion can uh, be heard roaring five miles away. Now, how many of you want to meet a lion in a dark alley? or on the plains of an African savanna. None of us would want to come face to face with a lion. It's the king of the beasts. What John here is saying about Jesus is that he's the king. He's the cornerstone, but he's the king. Now here's a paradox. And and if if you don't understand Revelation, welcome to the club. There's paradox in Revelation. Because what is Jesus personified as? John expects to turn around and see what? A roaring lion. What does he turn around and see? A lamb. Is Jesus a lamb or a lion? Yes. Which one? Yes. He's a lamb lion. Doesn't make any sense. Welcome to the world of Revelation. Things don't make sense in the way of thinking that we would. So here's the third reason. Not only is he the cornerstone, not only is he the king, but he's the crucified lamb. He's the crucified lamb. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now, it's interesting. The lamb is what? Standing. Everyone else in heaven is what? Bowing before the throne. The lamb is standing because he is God. He is fully God. What's also the significance of the lamb standing? He's resurrected. He's risen from the grave. The tomb is empty. If we don't believe in the empty tomb, we are the worst of fools. I think sometimes in our our church culture, we elevate the cross, and we should. We should talk about the substitutionary atonement. We should talk about the cross, but it is incomplete without the resurrection. We serve a risen Savior who's at the right hand of the Father. He is the King. 
And Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, for I delivered to you as a first importance. So anytime an apostle says this is the first important thing, you probably need to listen and say this is the most important thing we need to know. What I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Christ is victorious over the grave. He's victorious over sin. He's victorious over death. I think we as Christians need just to celebrate the resurrection. He's alive. Does that have any impact on our lives? That Christ is alive. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 70. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Now, not only is this lamb alive, but it bears the marks of a violent struggle. Notice what it says. As though it had been, what, slain. The original word there really means slaughtered. Those of you that are Greek students know it's in the perfect tense. I'm not going to bore you with Greek, but the perfect tense means an action came to the completion in the past. It has ongoing results that stand completed in the present. Meaning that Christ was slaughtered at one point on the cross, but the effects of that stand completed in the present. What were the last words Jesus said when he was on the cross? It is finished. The lamb has been crucified. Now John never says, hey readers, look, Jesus is the lamb. He doesn't need to. The word lamb shows up 27 times in the book of Revelation. What did John, the one who wrote the gospel, John, who wrote Revelation, what did he quote John the Baptist as saying in John 1.29? The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We know the lamb is Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 18-19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. One of my favorite passages of Scripture from the Old Testament is Isaiah 53. It's that vivid, poignant description of Christ from the prophecies of the Old Testament. And how is Christ described there in Isaiah 53? He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to a slaughter. And like sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He's led to the slaughter. In that culture, it meant your throat got slit if you were a lamb. He was tortured. He was killed not for his sins, but for ours. And yet in all of this, he didn't open his mouth. He didn't protest. He willingly entrusted himself to the Father to accomplish our redemption. And let me just say this. We all need this Lamb of God to take away our sins. I can't take for granted. I I always present the gospel everywhere I'm at. I can't take for granted that if we're at a Colorado Baptist General Convention that you're here and you are all saved. So if you're a lost person here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need this Lamb of God to take away your sins. Because let me just tell you something. Are you going to begin to enter the presence of God as we see in Revelation chapter 4? Are you going to waltz into his presence past the glassy sea? Are you going to survive the peals of thunder and the, and the lightning and the brightness emanating from the throne of God? Are you going to get past the flying creatures? Are you just going to stand there in God's presence and say, here I am? None of us can do that. We would all be obliterated on the spot if we just came into God in our own righteousness, in our own way. We need the Lamb of God to take away our sins, to get us into the presence of this God. We only insult God when we try to get to him by our own goodness. It's through the cross of another 
through the blood of another. We all need this plan of God. Now, we've seen three reasons to praise Jesus. He's the cornerstone, he's the king, he's the lamb. But, as you go through the rest of this chapter, what we are about to see is the most glorious eruption of praise in the entire universe. Greater than three minutes of a standing ovation for Charlie Chaplin, greater than the miracle on ice, we're going to see the worship in heaven. And just a side note, don't you think what we see in heaven should be a model for what we do in our churches? Might as well get practice now because we're going to be doing it forever. So we need to model our worship after what we see going on in heaven. So let's go through this text and I want to show you three concentric circles of praise. They, they kind of emanate from three concentric circles, starting from uh, the center of the throne room and on out. So, so let's read this, and we'll unpack these three concentric circles. So let's, let's continue reading. Verse 7. This is Jesus. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for, there's the purpose clause, why? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. We could probably just stop right there, not go any further. Just reading it causes us to worship. Let's look at these three concentric circles. And they, in, they intensify as you move out. What's the first concentric circle? What's the closest circle? It's in verses 8 through 10, the inner circle. It's the, it's the 24 elders and the four living creatures, those closest to the throne. When Jesus begins to take the scroll, they, what do they do? They fall down. These heavenly creatures, don't ask me what these four living creatures are, what, what these are. I, I don't know. I'll, I'll find out when I get there. But they fall down and they worship the Lord. Now, how do they worship with harps. Now for us as 21st century Americans, that's real exciting, right? We got Tom and Jerry theology, a guy sitting up on a toga on a cloud playing his little harp with a halo. If that's what we're going to do, be doing forever in heaven, you can count me out. I don't want to be sitting up on a cloud in a diaper, praising God, plinking a little harp. That's not what we're talking about here. Sorry to be a little offensive there if you're a harp player. I'm sorry. There may be some harp. What we're talking about here. In the Bible, a harp was more like a guitar. It was a nine or ten stringed instrument. And if you trace the use of a harp, especially back in the Old Testament, you realize that it's always equated with joyful worship. King David would appoint people to play the harp for joyful worship. Now, I play the guitar a little bit, not, not like the guys up here on the worship team that have been blessing us with worship. But there's something exciting about seeing what? A five-man acoustical jam of guys just jamming out. 
electric guitar solos, jamming out. Now, I don't know if these angels are going to be playing electric guitars in heaven. I don't know. It'd be cool if they were. We don't know. What the symbolism is, is that there is a joy that comes in the throne room because we're in the presence of the living Christ. And our attitude as Christians now should be one of joy. How many of our worship services are like going to a funeral? It should be the most joyous occasion when God's people meet together because the tomb is empty and we serve a risen Christ. Are we marked by joy? Does joy permeate who we are as God's people? But notice the new song that they sing. You were slain, we've talked about that. By your blood, you've ransomed people for God. Now, what is this whole business of ransom? Uh, The word ransom is really taken from the Old Testament. Think Egypt. The Israelites were in bondage in Egypt. They were in slavery. God said, I'm going to provide a provision to get you out of slavery. What do you need to do? You need to kill a lamb. When you kill this lamb, put the the blood on the lentils and doorposts of your house, and then when the angel of death passes over, you will be saved. What a glorious picture of, of Christ. And so what did God do? God provided a provision, a lamb, blood, bondage, release, promised land. That's the word ransom. It means to buy out of slavery, to purchase out of bondage. Christ has purchased us out of bondage. Praise the Lord, because a lot of us in this room know what we would be like if Christ had not purchased us out of that bondage, out of that slavery. He's purchased us. Really, it's the final exodus, if you will. It's interesting, when you read the book of Revelation, there's a lot of parallels to exodus. In the first exodus, who was ransomed? Just the Jews, right? The Israelites. The Egyptians didn't get to go. Just the Israelites. But in this final exodus, who's ransomed? People for God from where? Every type, language, people, and nation. Jews and Gentiles. The nations. All people groups. Representatives from all people groups will be there before the throne. So this first concentric circle of worship are these 24 elders and four living creatures that bow before Jesus. They worship joyfully They sing the new song. And notice how much the singing in heaven is focused on the cross. If you don't like singing about the blood of Jesus, you're going to be pretty bored in heaven. That's what they talk about. You go read the book of Revelation. What is always the repeated theme in in Revelation? The cross, the blood of Christ, the lamb who is worthy. And then we move out to the next concentric circle of worshipers. We see this in verses 11 and 12. What's the next group? Starts out with the four living creatures, and then it moves out. Verse 11. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So we have the next group. This is thousands upon thousands of angels, other beings in heaven. Now, we don't know what thousands upon thousands means. I don't know if John sat there and and counted every single one of them. It's a metaphor for this countless number of angels angels that are there. They are there. And what are they saying about Jesus? Verse 12, worthy is the lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now, sometimes you may be tempted to say, okay, there's, there's seven words there to describe Jesus. Let's break down every seven word and, and let's try to get a lexicon out and figure out what all these seven words mean. That's not the point. 
They all mean the same thing. They're stacked one upon the other to the power of seven to show that Jesus is worthy of ultimate praise and glory and worship. To the seventh power, inner circle, four living creatures, 24 elders. The next circle, thousands upon thousands of angels. And here's where it gets exciting. We get to the outer circle. This is us. Let's read how it unfolds. We see the outer circle. Verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is it. This is that moment in God's redemptive history where the whole universe comes before this throne and praises God. Now, this does not mean that everybody's saved. This is not a universalism type passage. This just means that the the heightened exuberance of praise reaches its peak at this moment. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be there. We as as a church have adopted the Bogota peoples of India as an unreached people group. And I know God has a sense of humor. And so here's what I'm expecting God to do. I know he's sovereign. He, he may not do this. I'm hoping that in heaven, there's the Emmanuel Baptist Church section and there's the Bogota Church section and we're right next to each other at the throne. Every tribe, every nation, every people gathered there together. What a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial, multicolored display of glory there at the throne when all the nations gather. And what's going to be our primary focus? Jesus. And notice how it ends. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I mean, that's all you can do, isn't it? Fall down and worship. Fall down and worship. Would we as Colorado Baptists be those that fall face down in humility, in joy, in passion to worship this Christ who's worthy to be broadcast to a lost and dying world? (coughs) Excuse me. We would bow. We would bow to Jesus, who's the cornerstone of all creation. We would bow to Jesus, who's the conquering lion. We would bow to Jesus, who's the crucified lamb. We would bow and fall face down to this Jesus. (coughs) Excuse me. You can't appeal to your morality or your righteous deeds on that day. You can't appeal to that. You can't appeal to you being a pastor. I was a pastor. You can't appeal to being a Southern Baptist on that day. The only thing you can do is fall face down and say, Jesus, the only reason I'm here is because you saved me and I've trusted you. I've rested in you. There's a saying I give my congregation all the time. Salvation is not an achieving, it's a receiving. You don't achieve it. You receive it. And this gives us confidence in the mission. This gives us great confidence in the mission. Because who do we serve? 
we serve a king who's on his throne. And I don't know about you, but the last time I checked, Jesus has not gotten off his throne. And we are guaranteed success in this mission. We know the end product. All nations, tribes, tongues, peoples will be there. So we have confidence that when we go in the power of the gospel, when we go in the confidence of of, of the word of God, when we go out and engage, we'll be successful, not because of us, but because of Christ. Let us joyfully and humbly display his glory to a dying world. Let me leave with this passage of scripture. Hebrews 12, 2. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I guess the last words I'd want to say as your president is that we would be a convention that wholeheartedly fixes our eyes on Jesus. He's the author. He's the finisher. And where is he? He's at the right hand of the Father. Completed the work. We go in his victory. So I don't want to leave here being triumphant. I don't want to leave here being moral. I don't want to leave here being pragmatic. I don't want to leave here even being defeated. I want to leave here going in the power of a crucified and risen Christ. So let me ask you to bow your heads. And as you bow, we're going to have one last time of worship. We've asked the praise team to come and lead us in a final song. And I just want this to be a sweet time for us as Colorado Baptists. Just to, um, through song, declare this as an anthem to our Lord that we will fix our eyes on Jesus, the lamb that was slain. So let me pray for us, and then we're just going to stand. And would you give it all you got in worship? Worship is a response to truth. We've had the word exposed to us, and the only proper response is to worship. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of love, a God of hope. And God, we're thankful that you sent Jesus Christ to die in our place, the Lamb of God, slain for us. And Lord Jesus, in this moment, we just want to say, worthy are you to receive honor and glory. The last thing we want to do when we leave this place is to be about us. We want it to be about you. May our eyes be fixed upon Christ. May we lead our churches to fix we go to lost and hurting people and show them Christ. May we go to the nations and show them Christ. We are confident, God, that this task will be completed because you're a sovereign God and you will get it done. The joy is we just get to be a part of it. The humbling thing is that you use us in the first place. God, you don't need us choose to use us. And we want to be good stewards of the trust you've given us. So may we as a family of Colorado Baptists stand together in this congregation and declare our love for you, Jesus, by singing, worthy 
is the lamb that was slain. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.